Good evening, and welcome to tonight's conversation. I'm Alan Carey, Director of Sphere Education Initiatives. It's a pleasure to be here with you all tonight on what is our third annual webinar, taking a look back on the term of the Supreme Court. Uh, tonight's webinar, Understanding the Major Decisions of the Supreme Court's Most Recent Term, is a fantastic opportunity for us to pause, reflect, and engage in understanding some of the, the challenging topics that come out of the Supreme Court. Uh, tonight, we're joined by two fantastic guests who talk about some of the major cases before us. We've identified four cases that we want to spend some time taking a look at, but we'd love to hear your thoughts and engage in any conversation about any of the cases from the most recent term. A couple of housekeeping items as we get started. First and foremost, uh, thank you for being here. If you haven't yet already, please make sure your name uh, shows up as what you registered as. That way we can make sure to give you a professional development certificate at the end of tonight's event. Second, uh, like many of you already are, please make heavy use of the chat. We'll be pulling questions from there for a Q&A portion of the conversation tonight. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts, questions, and engaging on the topics. As always, our priority is to make sure that the conversation tonight is a civil one, where we take a look at challenging ideas and engage in different perspectives. So please do bring that to the forefront in all of your interactions with people joining us from around the country. Uh, so with that, let me take a, a quick second to introduce tonight's guests. I'm very excited to be joined by first, uh, Tommy Berry. He's a research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, and is the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Before joining Cato, he was an attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation and clerked for Judge E. Grady Jolly of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Tommy, thanks for joining us. Uh, joining Tommy's longtime friend of Sphere and a fantastic scholar in her own right, Julie Silverbrook, is currently the Senior Director of Partnerships and Constitutional Scholar in Residence at iCivics. Julie previously served as Executive Director of the Constitutional Sources Project. Consource in Washington, D.C. from 2012 to 2020. She regularly writes and lectures on the United States Constitution and its history and the importance of civic education to the health of the American Republic. Thank you both again so much for joining us tonight. Uh, for tonight's conversation, what we wanted to try and do is tackle four cases, two of which have been decided, two of which we expect to get final rulings tomorrow such as the uh, the fate of the gods when it comes to trying to host when and guess when the court's going to wrap up its term in a given year. Uh, so for tonight's conversation, we're going to be tackling uh, Moore versus Harper, the student loan cases, affirmative action, and 303 creative. Lots of other cases we can talk about. So if you've got questions about those, throw them in the chat and we'll get there. Uh, but to get the, the night started, I wanted to turn it over to Tommy Berry to tell us a little bit about the student loan cases. A uh, variety of interesting things at play there. We expect a decision in those cases tomorrow. Tommy, share with us a little bit, what are the cases about? What's the sort of question that they're considering? And what are some of the important things that we've learned along the way as the case wraps its way to conclusion uh, sometime tomorrow morning about 10 a.m.? Indeed, happy to. So I should start with two full disclosures. One is that many challengers uh, sued uh, to challenge the student debt relief program that uh, President Biden attempted to implement in August. Uh, one that has not yet reached the court is was brought by the Cato Institute itself. Uh, so we don't pretend to be neutral in this. And we also filed uh, amicus briefs uh, supporting the challengers to the uh, uh, to the program in, in the cases that have reached the Supreme Court. Uh, but the other, the flip side of that uh, full disclosure is that I'm one of the people who would benefit uh, if it were upheld uh, financially. So I have I've never before filed a brief that was quite literally arguing against my own my own self-interest. Um, but you know, gotta stick to your principles sometimes. Uh, so the basic issue here is whether it was legal for President Biden to invoke a 2003 law called the Heroes Act. Uh, to implement a nationwide program, essentially forgiving either $10,000 or $20,000 of student debt uh, for people under a certain income threshold, or for people who met another category having received Pell Grants uh, during college. And the statutory hook, the claimed source of authority for this, was a 2003 law called the HEROES Act that was enacted right at the beginning of the Iraq War. It defines various people. It calls them affected individuals. People who have been sent to war uh, is one of them, but other another is resident of a disaster area. And that's the hook in this case. So the entire United States was declared a disaster area during the COVID-19 pandemic. So the claim is that every single resident of the United States is now eligible for relief under the statute. And it says that you 
you can waive or modify uh, rules of law, statutory rules, if it would have the effect of putting people affected by a natural disaster uh, back in the position they would have been in, but for the disaster uh, with respect to their finances uh, concerning student loans. So their argument is given the economy, you know, all the various things that uh, came, came about because of the pandemic, a lot of people, we had the three-year pause, we had people losing jobs. Uh, a lot of people are gonna be at risk of defaulting once payments resume. And the argument is that by adjusting their principal balances, you kind of make up for that. And that that buffer, uh, the lowered payments that will result from that will end up making it a wash and will bring the risk of default back to where it would have been otherwise. Um, the challengers have raised several issues to that. They say that for one thing, their argument, one statutory argument is that uh, forgiving debt is not a modification or a waiver under the statutory terms. So it doesn't fit uh, under that category. Another argument that I think is perhaps the strongest is that the statutory text says you can only do something if it's necessary to bring people back to uh, square, square, square zero. And I think that there were several uh, avenues that would have been less drastic uh, than the course they took, for example, perhaps getting more people on an automatic payment-based, uh, income-based repayment plan might have also reduced defaults, but without forgiving $400 billion of debt. So at the Supreme Court, uh, but one of the key issues is who has standing to challenge this, and arguably that's uh, the more uncertain uh, question at the Supreme Court. So several people tried to challenge it, including a group of states. Uh, the most plausible claim is Missouri because it has a quasi-state agency that services student loans. And so their argument is that this is wrapped up, it, essentially Missouri's finances are wrapped up in this quasi-state agency and its finances are gonna be harmed if people uh, have their debt uh, reduced such that they no longer pay fees, service fees to the, uh, to the servicer. Uh, so there was some skepticism raised by that from four justices during oral argument, but four is very different from five. So I think uh, the three more liberal justices and also Justice Barrett. So I think one of the key unanswered questions is, was any of the other five justices also skeptical of that, that standing argument, uh, but didn't say it uh, during oral argument? On the actual merits, there is a lot of skepticism uh, that the statute really was intended to give this broad a power to forgive $400 billion of debt. There is a lot of references to the major questions doctrine, especially from Chief Justice Roberts. This is kind of a new evolving doctrine that says, even if you might be able to interpret the text in the abstract to give you a power, if it's not plausible that Congress would have intended a relatively like sleepy, not often invoked portion of a statute to have a really huge potential effect, then you say that's too major a question uh, to be resolved by this sort of ancillary provision, to use the, the Supreme Court's favorite phrase. So these are the two things I'll be looking at tomorrow, is do, do any of the challengers have standing? And then if the court does reach the merits, uh, will they rely on the major questions doctrine and uh, to strike it down? And I think that's probably the most likely outcome. Tommy, thanks so much for that overview. I think it's a, a very interesting case and one that I know that many of us, uh, particularly those attending tonight, are, are feel a personal stake in the outcome in one way or the other. Uh, Julie, let me turn it over to you. First, uh, anything additional that you'd love to add to what Tommy shared about the student loan case? And then we'd love to hear you share a little bit more about 303 Creative versus Alanis. Tell a little bit more about the, the case that seems to be... Uh, I think sliding under the radar a little bit, but a very interesting one around free speech coming out of Colorado. Julie? Yeah, um, not much more to add on the uh, student loan cases. Um, it's interesting that 303 Creative seems to be flying under the radar because I don't think that um, was necessarily true at the beginning of the, of the court's um, term. So again, this is a case where uh, we will see an opinion handed down tomorrow. Um, Similar to the student loan case, there's a question of standing. So there, there's a question of whether or not there will be a substantive uh, decision. Um, the case centers on a website de designer named Lori Smith, uh, who's a devout Christian, uh, and she designs websites, among other things. She wants to expand her business to include wedding websites, uh, but only for opposite-sex couples because her religious uh, views um, lead her to believe that uh, op opposite-sex marriages are um, uh, endorsed by the Bible, whereas same-sex marriages 
are not. Um, her argument is that a Colorado uh, public accommodations law um, that prohibits businesses from discriminating um, on the basis of uh, race, sex, sexual orientation um, violates her right to freedom of speech. Um, I think at oral argument, uh, Justice Sonia uh, Sotomayor actually kind of uh, put into stark relief in a comment she made sort of what's at stake on both sides. Um, so she said um, that if the court were to rule in Ms. Smith's favor, be the first time that the court has ruled that a commercial business can refuse to serve a customer based on race, sex, religion, or sexual orientation. On the other hand, Chief Justice John Roberts countered that the Supreme Court has never approved of efforts to compel, compel speech um, that is contrary to the speaker's sincerely held beliefs. Um, obviously the court is split 6-3 uh, in favor of the sort of more uh, conservative uh, judicial philosophy. Um, and so I, you know, John Roberts view might, might prevail here. Um, there's some questions about whether or not the creation of a wedding website is speech and where to draw the line. I think that will be an important part of the court's uh, decision. Um, and so uh, I think um, Justice Kavanaugh uh, in um, oral argument um, referenced a uh, amicus brief filed by a group of First Amendment scholars that drew a line between businesses who create speech. You could argue that a custom website is the creation of speech and those who are creating speech can't be compelled to serve weddings on the one hand and then providers of services that aren't speech. So, you know, if you're providing chairs or tables at a wedding, uh, there's no message being communicated uh, by providing those chairs. So, um, you know, you wouldn't be uh, able to make a free speech claim for why you can't, you wouldn't participate um, in providing that service. Um, so, you know, I think you could see some line drawing um, like that. Um, the question then becomes, because those are fact-based analyses, you're going to see like a lot of litigation for like who falls in one category and who falls in the other. Um, and so I, you know, I don't know if the court wants to take up a lot of litigation on this. So I think where they draw the line um, and how clear they are on what falls on one side and what falls on the other will dictate um, how much additional litigation we'll see on these sorts of um, issues. Um, I think uh, in terms of, uh, there's some weird facts for this case. Um, I, I'll admit there's a lot of stuff that's coming out just today. So I'm gonna caveat like everything I say today <laughs> with like, this is all happening in real time. Um, there's a news report that came out earlier today that there's that um, the uh, gentleman who apparently contacted 303 Creative about creating a website for himself and his same-sex partner is actually married and married to a woman and never submitted that request. Um, I don't know about the veracity of the report, but uh, that's a, a interesting sort of factual wrench being thrown in really at the last minute um, before the Supreme Court um, hands down uh, its opinion. Um, and so just wanted to note that because you've undoubtedly, if you've been on social media at all today, um, have possibly seen um, that news report. And again, that goes to the question of standing. Julie, thank you so much for that. One one quick follow-up question. Uh, many of the people here may be thinking, how, didn't we already have a case really like this coming out of Colorado, the sort of masterpiece cake shop case decided not too long back? What What's sort of the, the meaningful distinction between what the court decided in that case and what they're considering in 303 Creative? Yeah, so um, in the three in the masterpiece cake shop um, case, you we didn't actually see um, a decision um, on uh, the the merits. Um, that is also a free exercise claim, but there um, basically it went back to a Colorado um, commission to more fully uh, consider the claims in that case because there was a, a concern about the the fairness of how it was evaluated. So this would be a more substantive um, decision. And to be honest with you, a 
Cake Baker might be on the losing side of 303 Creative, right? That's a service. That's not a message versus a custom website. We don't actually know where the baker would fall. Um, it depends on how the opinion's written tomorrow. Well, thanks, Julie. All right. Well, let's talk about the, the two cases that we wanted to cover tonight that have been decided. So, uh, Tommy, let me turn to you first to talk about the Moore versus Harper case. Recently decided 6-3 decision. A couple of interesting things about this one. One, I'll first note that while it was a 6-3 decision, it was a 6-3 decision with a slightly different makeup than we often see, right? So in this case, we saw Thomas Gorsuch and Alito in dissent. So it wasn't a simple conservative liberal block voting alignment. Uh, but Tommy, tell us a little bit about the Moore versus Harper case and then what many people, why it's particularly important because it was uh, the first of the sort of cases around what people are referring to as the independent state legislature, legislature theory. What is that? What does that have to do with elections? And uh, what happened to the case? Sure. So this all stems from a provision of the Constitution that's somewhat unique and unusual related to election law. So most of the Constitution, you know, we have a federalist system of both state and uh, federal power. Some powers are given to the federal government. Some powers are given to the state. Uh, but when setting the rules, the times and places uh, of congressional elections, the Constitution has kind of a unique uh, split. It says that states uh, have this, it assigns to the state legislature uh, the power to set the times and manners and places of uh, congressional elections, but then says the federal legislature, if it wants, Congress can overrule that or can make one of itself fill a gap if a state just forgets to do it, doesn't, doesn't do its duty that it's been assigned. Um, and so the key question here is how much weight do we put on that choice of the word legislature in that provision? Do we take it hyper-literally, or do we take it more broadly to simply to refer to the overall lawmaking process in the state? So the independent state legislature doctrine, in a nutshell, is that was the theory that we should read that more literally, and that state legislature means just the lawmaking procedure uh, within the state. And the key point there is that under this theory, it is not subject to review by state courts for compliance with state constitutional provisions. To, to really understand why is this coming up now and why do people care, you have to have the context of a 2019 case called Rucho versus Common Cause, where the federal Supreme Court held that there is no, uh, you cannot bring a claim for partisan gerrymandering under the federal constitution. So you can't claim like our, the state legislature favored Republicans too much or favored Democrats too much in the way that they drew the little squiggly districts. Uh, you can't bring that claim under the federal constitution, but the general rule is, and this happens in all sorts of doctrines, that you can often bring claims, state Supreme Courts are free to interpret their state constitutions more broadly than the federal constitution, even if the language is identical. And that's what happened in this case in uh, North Carolina. Uh, the state the state Supreme Court held that under its constitution of North Carolina, there is a right to bring a challenge to partisan gerrymandering. And they struck down uh, uh, the congressional districts that the state legislature had drawn. And so the challenge uh, that was brought to that claimed that no, that's a state court taking power that is only limited to the state legislature. Uh, some people, a common misconception of this was that it was sometimes described as a theory that there is no judicial review whatsoever for state legislative decisions, but that isn't quite right. It's about state versus federal courts. So even under the broadest theory of, of the independent state legislature doctrine, a federal court could still review it for compliance with the federal constitution. The key question was, could state courts also review it for compliance with the state constitution? Uh, and then procedurally, there was a very weird wrinkle where during the course of this litigation, uh, over the after the Supreme Court had agreed to take the case, there is a switch in party control of the North Carolina Supreme Court, a uh, key seat flipped. Uh, a, a Later on in the procedure of this case, it went back to the North Carolina Supreme Court and it reversed itself on the, on the question of whether its own state constitution does allow for partisan gerrymandering challenges. It now said, oh, we were wrong that first time. We now hold there is no right to challenge. And most people thought after it made that reversal, oh, this case must be moot because no matter what, 
this district is the the original district lines are going to be drawn the same way anyway. The legislature can just go back to the drawing board, do what it originally did, and now they're going to be upheld. So it was quite a surprise to I would say the vast majority of SCOTUS watchers when the Supreme Court did issue a ruling on the merits. Uh, the six justice majority, written by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, said that the case is not moot because the first decision uh, still. If they reversed it, that would still have an effect. It would immediately spring the original uh, lines that were drawn back into effect, whereas it, you would probably get to the same endpoint anyway, uh, other, no matter what, but there would still be some more steps needed to be taken by the state legislature. So uh, you might say awfully formalistic. You might say it's sort of you know about form rather than about the upshot of, of what's actually going to make a difference, but the Supreme Court hung its hat on that. And then on the merits, they rejected this theory. They looked at sort of early usage of these terms, early approaches to state court litigation, and they saw that lots, you know, there was, when the Constitution was drafted, there was already a robust tradition of state Supreme Courts subjecting state uh, statutes to judicial review. So the framers were aware that this was part of the legislative process. Uh, they pointed out that it's a little tough to draw a bright line uh, of the word legislature because even the challengers conceded that legislature includes like a governor's veto. So they tried to draw a very fine distinction between procedure versus substance. They said, yes, legislature includes other procedural things like a governor's veto or a state court review to make sure that you actually did get a majority in both you know, in both houses and that you followed whatever state procedure, whatever procedural rules the Constitution sets, but that you can't have substantive rules like no partisan gerrymandering. And the Supreme Court just said, we're, we're not going to go down the road of drawing those fuzzy lines. Like, what if a governor vetoes a district drawing because he doesn't like the fact that it's partisan gerrymandering? Is that procedure? Or is that substance? It, it gets awfully tricky. So they found that, and and they also noted that even the Supreme Court had taken a somewhat expansive view of what could potentially be a legislature in various cases. There was a decision a few years ago where they said even a state referendum uh, could take the place, could be a legislature uh, in constitutional terms, because it basically just broadly means the lawmaking process, however a state has set out that lawmaking process. Uh, and the court could have stopped there, but Quite surprisingly, they then at the very end pointed out that because this provision is kind of unique and is a delegation to a state to make rules for a procedure of federal that has to do with the federal system, electing federal members of the federal Congress, they said there's still a role for federal courts to play, even reviewing state court decisions. So they said, uh, at an, hypothetically, at an extreme, if a state Supreme Court uh, say, struck down a state decision, a state legislature decision, and it just seemed completely wacky. It just seemed unjustifiable as any interpretation of their state constitution. And it just seemed like the, the state Supreme Court had gone rogue and was just policymaking. They, the, the federal Supreme Court in this decision said, hypothetically, in that scenario, federal courts could step in and say, no, this was so wacky. And this was not being a judiciary, this was so lawmaking that you took power away from the legislature and, and were allowed to over, over, overrule that. And they even, even more shockingly, cited to Bush versus Gore and the various decisions from that as precedent, which is the first time ever that Bush versus Gore has been cited in a majority opinion by the Supreme Court in 23 years. And many people thought it never would be that it was good for one train ride only. Uh, so uh, the upshot is state States will now still have the freedom to have more limits in their state constitutions on lawmaking, on districting than the federal constitution sets. Uh, you will, you know, some state constitutions, even if North Carolina's hasn't been, some will likely be interpreted to prohibit partisan gerrymandering, and they will have more rules uh, than the federal constitution sets. Tommy, thanks for that. I Interesting case, a lot of complexities and moving pieces in that one. Julie, any any thoughts on that case? Other things that you think are, are particularly important to reference? Yeah, I think like Tommy, I was um, really surprised that we got a substantive ruling. I really thought this one was going to be um, dismissed on grounds of mootness. Um, I don't live in Chief Justice John Roberts' head, but I might offer that 
um, there's a very contentious election cycle coming up next year and can't help but think that wanting to have clarity on the independent state legislature theory um, was a motivating factor. Um, for the benefit of the, of the teachers in the room, um, how it works for opinion assignment is if the chief justice is in the majority, he assigns the opinion, of course, retains the right to assign the opinion to himself. I think Chief Justice John Roberts does that very strategically in the cases that he holds um, for himself to write the opinion. And, and he has historically um, written opinions, um, taking into account prudential concerns. And I think that that feels very uh, evident in this opinion, um, in my view, when he's not uh, in the majority, it is the senior most justice uh, in the majority who can assign the opinion. And of course, they also retain the right to assign it to themselves. So I just wanted to explain um, how that might, how that happens. Um, so I think, uh, I always think when you see a John Roberts opinion, there's a real reason why he wanted it. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, my, my guess, uh, I don't know for sure, but my guess is it has something to do with wanting that clarity ahead of 2024. Oh, thanks, Julie. Uh, well, let, let's turn to perhaps the the most interesting and contentious case that we were going to be considering tonight, and that's the uh, affirmative action cases. So formerly Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and UNC, respectively, uh, just decided this morning an interesting decision that I think we're going to be picking apart for a long time. For those of you who popped it open, we were, we were talking earlier, it's a 237-page long case, counting uh, opinion and dissents. It's it's a doozy. Uh, Julie, walk us through the sort of extreme Cliff Notes version. What's going on with this case? What was that question? And then what are some of the, the particularly interesting findings, both in the uh, the opinion of the case, as well as some of the concurrences and dissents? Yes, I'm just going to issue the caveat that it is over 200 pages. Um, and I skimmed almost all of those pages and read uh, big pieces of it. But um, it's a lot to digest. So I issue the caveat that um, it just came out this morning um, and I, I'm responding in real time. I, so uh, don't quote me on anything like two weeks from now when I've had more time to look uh, into it. So um, this was a 6-3 vote. It divided along um, expected ideological lines. Um, it ruled that the admissions programs used at the University of North Carolina and Harvard uh, violate the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause which uh, bars racial discrimination um, by government entities. Like uh, Again, you know there's a reason if John Roberts is keeping the opinion, so he held the opinion in this case um, and wrote the majority. Um, he applies to this case uh, his sort of theory of a colorblind constitution, which he's applied in some other cases related to the Voting Rights Act. So the language in this case is very similar to other cases where he's talked about um, the colorblind constitution. Uh, the dissenters in this case very much so disagree uh, with his uh, characterization of a colorblind constitution. So I just want to make note of that. Um, in his view, um, he does not believe that college admissions uh, programs can consider uh, race uh, 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 as one factor uh, to, sorry, use race as like a, as a proxy uh, for um, the goals that were set up in a 2003 case, which was about 28 years ago in Grutter v. Bollinger. Um, and here he talks about how, um, and, and in that case, they held uh, that race can be one factor among many um, that help to assemble a diverse student body. Um, but that it's always broader than race. So race is like uh, one of any number of factors. So Roberts talks about a couple of different reasons why the court uh, needs to get out of this business. Now I will say they do not explicitly overrule Grutter, um, but they effectively overrule Grutter, something that Justice Thomas uh, really underscores in his opinion. And I would actually say the dissents probably agree with Justice Thomas's uh, characterization. Um, that this really gutted affirmative action uh, programs in higher education. So some things that he he looked at in making this decision is that um, when you're the goals that uh, were uh, that higher education was hoping to achieve by looking at race directly 
were things like training future leaders in the public and private sector, promoting the robust exchange of ideas. But Robert said, really, those are very vague and courts are not well positioned to measure the extent to which race uh, as a proxy would help achieve those goals. Something else that was really important to him in striking this down is that he feels that the programs used race in a negative manner. Um, and uh, this was argued, the universities uh, argued against this, that the race is never a negative factor, but Roberts points out that college admissions is zero sum, right? So if one person is accepted, another person isn't. Um, and so if, the if using race as a factor means one student of a particular race gets admitted, it means a student of another race is not getting admitted uh, really on the basis of their racial identity. And he just says that the constitution just doesn't uh, allow for that. The other thing he notes, um, and this comes right out of Gruder, is that the UNC and Harvard programs lacked any kind of sunset date, right? There were no time limitations on the program. There were actually conversations at UNC about expanding um, the program, and that was problematic for him um, as well and played into his decision uh, to strike down their affirmative action programs. Now, he issued sort of a, a caveat um, that Harvard immediately picked up on it. I'm gonna read the language directly um, from the opinion. So he said that schools can consider an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her, her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. So what this means is the onus is really now on students in their essays and many universities, I would say probably most universities now have an optional diversity essay that you can submit that it would be important to write that essay and explain in which your experience um, as a, a, a person of color, right, affected your life uh, and how that, um, you know, inspired you or it led to a challenge that you had to overcome or a lesson learned um, and that universities could take that into account when um, admitting a student. Um, so, you know, some people have said that's a, a hole that universities are probably going to drive a big truck through. That's language where you're going to see the next set of litigation on this, because what does that mean, right? So um, on one hand, uh, it provides an opportunity for uh, colleges and universities to continue to try to create a more diverse student body um, through those essays. On the other hand, that's much less transparent than the current affirmative action programs, right? So um, it will be very interesting to see how groups um, that actively challenge affirmative action programs, uh, like the petitioners in this case, are going to try to figure out like how that is how that is happening um, when it's solely based on essays, which are not publicly available. Um, and so I think there's a question about transparency that comes up uh, based on um, that language. And as I noted, Harvard literally sent out a, a note um, saying it would respect the literally like within an hour of the opinion coming out, saying we'll respect the opinion. They hung their hat on that language. And I think that's where most universities uh, are going to go. Um, and so uh, the, the other thing that's sort of interesting about this case is that they exempted for now uh, the military academies, the US Naval Academy and West Point, um, and that they can continue to uh, use race conscious admissions uh, programs. That was in a footnote. Um, and uh, the military had sort of argued separately for the interests that they have uh, there. So that is sort of a, an interesting exemption that um, is very difficult, I think, to square with the rest of uh, the opinion, um, but, it, but worth noting, I think. Uh, the dissents were very fiery. Um, Justice Sotomayor uh, read her dissent from the bench. Um, I think also importantly is that Justice Thomas read his concurrence. Um, from the bench, which is somewhat unusual. Um, and um, that's because uh, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Jackson, and Justice Thomas all feel very strongly um, about uh, the issue of affirmative action. And uh, they um, wanted to uh, convey that, I think, by reading the bench, it, it sends a signal. Um, so I just want to uh, briefly um, touch on some of the things that came up in the dissent. 
Um, so Justice Sotomayor argues that this rolls back decades of precedent um, and uh, calls the rule of colorblindness superficial um, and that it sort of blinds itself ironically to the real, the constitutional ra reality that we live in what she calls an endemically segregated society. Um, I think Justice Jackson probably has the quote. Um, she, I should note, Justice Jackson rec recused from the Harvard case because uh, she was on the board of overseers there. So she wrote a separate dissent in the UNC case. Um, and I think as a woman of color, um, she felt uh, particularly motivated to write a separate uh, dissent, even though she also signed Justice Sotomayor's dissent. Um, but I think she has the quote that you're gonna see in lots of places for people who support affirmative action programs. And I'll just quote it here. Um, she says, with let them eat cake obliviousness today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat, but deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. And indeed, um, I have already seen this quoted in many places. You'll probably see it in t-shirts um, at a certain point. This does feel like a, a really momentous decision. Um, it feels like sort of undoing the status quo on affirmative action. Um, in higher education, it's gonna cause a massive shift in how university admissions offices handle um, uh, race-based admission diversity um, at the university. I don't think it's gonna shift the fact that that's a priority um, in higher education. So it's just a question of how the universities are gonna adapt to the new legal reality. Um, I will say, um, if you look at the strategic, politically strategic litigation that was behind this case um, and the groups that are supportive of the, that were supportive of the challenges to affirmative action, very interested in now going after um, uh, merit-based hiring uh, practices. So you're gonna see more litigation that's looking at um, racial preferences um, or taking race into account in hiring decisions as well as in university admissions. So this is certainly not the last word uh, on either. Um, we should expect plenty more litigation in the years to come. Thanks, Julie. Uh, tell me, I want to get your thoughts, but real quick, I want to encourage uh, those of you who have questions and haven't thrown them in the chat yet, please do. We're going to be turning to your thoughts and questions here very soon. Uh, Tommy, would love your thoughts as well. What are some additional things that you would like to uh, to share about the uh, well, the fascinating case that Julie just shared with us. Yeah, well, no, I agree with all of that. So no no contradictions there. There is a fascinating, uh, I completely agree that the whole fight now is going to be on these the essays, the personal experience, to what extent can that be used to replace explicitly race conscious admissions? There's, a, there's actually a back and forth on that point. Um, part of Justice Jackson's dissent says that and says, hey, sort of gives advice, like you, should, you universities should shift to this, and this is an important caveat. And then Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion says, not so fast, it's not usually a good idea to rely on legal advice in a dissenting opinion. He actually says that. And then he says, you can't, uh, you can't just use this as a workaround to do by other means what we've told you you can't achieve. And to me, that that makes me wonder whether we're going to, and, and it may be unseemly, but I think we might get to this point where people will simply look at the results, sort of look at the admission statistics. A big part of this case was the statistics, like a person of a certain, you know, African-Americans in the top decile, you know, we had a 90 9% chance of admission, Asian Americans had only 55% chance of admissions or things like that. Uh, if, you know, five years down the road, people will probably perhaps be bringing more lawsuits against other universities and say, have these changed at all? And if they haven't, then they would say, well, they must be somehow, you know, secretly taking race into account. And I don't know whether those will succeed or not, but those are the things people will be looking at. And we do have comparators. So we have some state university systems that already had banned race conscious admissions, Michigan and California are two of those. And we do have very different racial breakdowns at their flagship universities like UC Berkeley. Um, and so I think people will point to those as an example of, you know, is it going to look more like that? Or is it going to look more like what it has 
currently looked at at Harvard. I saw a question in the chat and it's relevant now, so I'll just address it, which is why does this apply to Harvard or any private university? Uh, isn't the 14th Amendment only about state action? And that's absolutely true. So the hook for private universities is Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that says any institution that receives federal funding uh, cannot discriminate on the basis of race uh, in access to uh, any program. So it's worded very broadly. And in, uh, in the Bakke case, one of the uh, key Supreme Court precedents, uh, five justices said, whatever the test is for the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, we're going to say that's the same test for uh, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. So by definition, if a program violates our tests and violates strict scrutiny for equal protection, it also violates Title VI. Uh, uh, in theory, any any private university could say, we like race-conscious admissions so much, we're just going to not accept federal funding anymore. A few uh, private Christian universities did that in the 1980s. That may not be likely, you know, for states that get research grants in the millions or even, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. But in theory, that they do have that option. And as a libertarian, I will admit that it's somewhat conflicting. It's not, I think libertarians say it's not an ideal economy economic situation when you have universities essentially rely on federal funding that they all get and as a result they have to comply with a lot of of federal statutes as opposed to have the freedom to experiment in, in the admissions rules they want to set uh, and justice gorsuch had a very interesting concurrence where he criticized that precedent and said no actually title six is even stronger than the equal protection clause it doesn't have a strict scrutiny exception it just says no discrimination no matter what so his argument is that we didn't even have to go through these justifications both unc and harvard received federal funds and any racial discrimination is a flat violation of the text of title six and interestingly he cited to his bostock his very controversial bostock uh, opinion uh, that many conservatives have criticized that said uh, Title VII applies to discrimination on the basis of transgender status um, and said, if you read it, that this is literally as we read that in my majority opinion, you have to say any discrimination violates the statute. Thanks, Tommy. I, I, I want to sort of expand the question you just answered and take a, a look sort of more broadly, if the, the two of you are familiar with it. Are there other examples besides uh, higher education institutions where the Equal Protection Clause has been applied to those private institutions, other hooks like the receiving federal funding that that you're all familiar with? I, I don't know any off the top of my head, but I am not a constitutional scholar in the way that the, the two of you are. Any familiarity with something like that happening elsewhere? Uh, well, it's not about receipt of, of federal funding, but I think you've seen, um, you know, in public accommodations laws, the, the application of the 14th Amendment, maybe you could see that as analogous um, to that, right? Sort of pretty expansive reading of the um, interstate commerce clause as well to allow for the federal government to really reach into private businesses. Yeah. I don't have any beyond that, but that's that's a great point and a great example. Well, lots of fantastic questions coming in. Let me let me throw a few of them out there for you all to deal with. And please, uh, all of you attending tonight, uh, whether these uh, cases we discussed or other cases that were decided that you're interested in, don't hesitate to ask those questions. Uh, one that I was particularly interested in, uh, let's see here, where did that one go? I was really excited about it and now I have lost it. Uh, yeah, so Travis asked a question earlier, Tommy, in relation to the case that you were talking about uh, with Moore versus Harper. He was asking about the impact on who is in power at a particular time has on some of these kinds of decisions. So with North Carolina, they've been known to gerrymander on both sides, sort of peer support, some difficulty how this will actually be done in reality. So getting a little more to the question, I know the court still decided, uh, even though there was a change in this particular circumstance, but broadly speaking, as we're thinking about around uh, these sort of changes in power and gerrymandering questions does that that impact this anymore or might we might we still see additional cases around versions of the the independent state legislature theory well i think now that the independent state legislature theory has been rejected, we're going to see a lot more state level litigation about all sorts of claims under state constitutions we're going to see partisan gerrymandering claims be brought in 
pretty much every state because the North Carolina Supreme Court in its original holding interpreted very broad and sort of generally worded provisions like the right to free elections to have to have a standard. And so we're going to, in some ways, be relitigating a lot of the questions about part, can you have an objective standard uh, to evaluate partisan gerrymandering claims at the state level? And in some ways, it may be a fascinating sort of experiment. You know, um, one of the reasons we have federalism is the notion of 50, 50 experiments. Uh, and if we're, we don't have it at the federal level, but we're probably going to see, even though North Carolina overruled itself, some states, I'm sure, are going to have state Supreme Courts that do rule that, that there's a right to challenge partisan gerrymandering. And then you're going to see, okay, how do you have objective standards for that? How do you show that, how do you draw that line of how much gerrymandering is too much gerrymandering? Do you compile statistics? Do you look at how much it switched? Do you look at proportional, how much, how many seats did they win versus proportional representation? How much share of the vote did they get statewide? All of these kind of political science questions are going to come back up. Um, and so one of the, one of the results of this is that political science are going to have a lot more, a lot more work and be kept more in business than if that this case had gone the other way. Well, so much the better for the political scientists, I suppose, though I don't know that that's the best outcome for all of us having spent much of my life around political scientists. Uh, Julia, I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, a question that came up in relation to uh, other ways of thinking about affirmative action. So the the, case, the court specifically decided around race-based preferences in affirmative action. Some conversation, like you mentioned, has to do with race when it applies to hiring, but there are also other kinds of preferential treatment policies that have been pursued. So the one that came up in the chat was thinking about uh, gender-based affirmative action, right? So are there opportunities where to get more of a balancing uh, boys will treat be given uh, lower standards than girls, for example, as, as one version of that. Is the reason to think from the, the case that we've seen so far that the court would have thoughts on other kinds of preferential based treatments that ought to be considered as a result of the case today? Yeah, um, I haven't seen a whole lot about um, the gender-based preferences. I did see the comment in the, in the chat. Um, I, I would have to look more into um, the the facts of that. Um, I, I don't know um, that universities are explicitly applying a different or evaluating um, uh, male and female applicants uh, differently, but if they they were doing that and they were giving um, you know additional points or you know additional consideration on the basis of gender, um, it's a, a different, uh, level of uh, constitutional review for gender than there is uh, for for race, um, but, but if that is happening, I could definitely see uh, litigation on that. But again, I'm I'm not familiar with the university having uh, uh, explicit programs um, that are are looking. And, and in fact, um, I think most universities are uh, now have slight majority of female. Uh, applicants. Um, so I, I would think that actually to diversify, they would actually need to be giving preference to male candidates over female candidates uh, to, to even out uh, or to ensure that um, the uh, university population is reflective um, of the uh, gender breakdowns in the general population. Excellent. Uh a related point that, that Candy brings up, a lot of the conversation today subsequently has been about uh, affirmative action, sure, but what do we do about the legacy problem? That is the legacy emissions, particularly at elite institutions. A uh, lot that we could speculate in that space, but I'll, I'll, I'll narrow it down to a more specific version of the question, which is thinking about, is that something that there is any plausible case for the court to take up? That is, and we may have social reasons for thinking this. There may be reasons why a board of advisors for a university wants to change these kinds of policies. But is there a legal case to be made around legacy admissions in a way that, say, affirmative action or race-based admissions have been made? Uh, so I I think you can try to litigate on anything, right? I'll say, uh, but how you would evaluate a um, a legacy. Um, uh, or even, you know, there's preference for uh, children who are, um, uh, for applicants who are children of staff members um, of a university is, 
you know, how that would be evaluated is, you know, does the university have a rational basis uh, for um, allowing that to be a factor that they take into account versus an affirmative action when it implicates race, you need to have a compelling interest um, in um, using race as a factor. And then again, as I was saying with, with gender, that's sort of this intermediary or sex rather that's an intermediary uh, level um, of review. So, um, you know, you'd, you'd have to have some really good facts uh, to be able to prevail um, on that. Now, I mean, it would be interesting if to, to say, because if you look at legacy admissions and you look at the, um, the race breakdown of them, maybe that is by and large, uh, those are, are white students. Um, and so, you know, maybe there is a, an argument you can make that's race-based. Um, there, but again, I think you're climbing an uphill battle for that. So I actually have a bolder take on that. Uh, it's fortuitous you asked this because I actually have an op-ed in the works on this exact topic, challenges to legacies under the 14th Amendment. I think that there is a serious argument to be made for strict scrutiny, even for legacy admissions, because the argument would be it discriminates based on the circumstances of your birth. And if you take the principles of the 14th Amendment holistically, it was not just about race. It was general. There were lots of talking about anti-caste, C-A-S-T-E, the notion of people born to nobility versus people born in low station, the law should treat them all equally. There were a lot of references to, this, to the, the ban on titles of nobility in the original constitution and how the Equal Protection Clause and the Privileges or Immunities Clause would kind of take that principle and extend it to the states. And there have even been several Supreme Court precedents about circumstances of birth discrimination. The key ones are born in wedlock versus born out of wedlock. The Supreme Court has struck down two different laws that essentially treated people who were born in wedlock better in terms of the benefits they could get, the presumption of inheritance and things like that. And the Supreme Court said it's contrary to the basic uh, concept of our system that uh, legal burdens should bear some relationship to individual responsibility and wrongdoing, and you can affect neither your parents' conduct nor their own status. So if a challenge were brought to legacy admissions, you would hone in on those precedents in particular and say, just like you can't control your race when you're born, just like you can't control your sex, you also can't control, did your dad go to Harvard before you were born? Oh, I love that. And uh, when you write that, that's for sure going to be in somebody's amicus brief if they uh, <laughs> they challenge this and it goes up on appeal. That's really interesting. Uh, fascinating. Also, I swear I did not know you were writing an op-ed about it ahead of time. Uh, otherwise, it would have come up as a, a much clearer softball for you on this one. But <laughs> that, I love that. So a few other cases we haven't gotten to, but I think a, a couple of them that I'd, I'd be interested in talking about. First, I'm uh, wanted to hear some of your thoughts on the Indian child welfare case. So uh, an interesting one that had to do about adoption preferences uh, by Native American communities versus uh, those outside of those communities and reservations and how that comes up. Uh, an interesting one in a number of different ways. I don't know if one of you wanted to give us a, a quick uh, thought on what was the case all about and are there some interesting things to, to pull out of that particular case? Do you want to take that or do you want me to? Sure. Yeah, I can take it um, just generally. So um, the uh, case was uh, seven to two. Um, Justice Gorsuch uh, is, uh, has um, fairly strong views on uh, Native American um, rights. He wrote an interesting concurrence in that case. The opinion um, was uh, written by Justice Barrett um, and uh, it really is about um, the a law, a federal law, the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, and the court ruled that that does not impermissibly impose a federal mandate on an area that is traditionally uh, state regulated. This has to do um, with child welfare. So, you know, if, if parents are um, abusing or neglecting their child, that the state um, can intervene. And really the act is, uh, is aimed at um, keeping uh, children of uh, who come from the Native American tradition within Native American uh, families and not wanting to interfere uh, with that family unit um, and that being important to um, respecting um, 
tribal culture and tribal sovereignty. On the other side of the ledger is the very real concerns about um, child welfare um, and child welfare wellness and wanting children to be placed in the best possible home um, if I, you know, they're in an endangered situation. Yeah. And I'll add that the court left open a very important question, which is, again, whether this law violates equal protection and discriminates on the basis of race. The court held that none of the parties had standing to make that claim, that you essentially had to go through state courts first. So that's an open question and could come back to the Supreme Court. And that raises, it's really tricky and, and kind of a unique question in this context, because the Constitution, unlike any other group, explicitly talks about Indian in, in relations with them in several provisions. There's a commerce, there's not just the interstate commerce clause, there's also an Indian commerce clause. When it talks about how do you count a population of a state, it exempts Indians not taxed. And so there is a plausible originalist argument that Indian is not just a, it's not just a race, but under the original constitution, it's, it's something in addition to that. It's sort of a, a quasi sovereign entity that we have relations with almost like a foreign government that, that, that has a unique status in that respect. And so how you square that with equal protection clause prohibitions on differentiating between races is really tricky. It's sort of a question of, is this fundamentally about their race or is it about their status as members of tribe, members of, of governments that we have this unique relationship to? We are, we're coming close to the end of our time tonight. What I wanted to do is uh, for a final question posed to both of you, of the cases that have been decided so far, so setting aside the, the last couple that we've got coming out tomorrow, what do you take to be, over the long term, the most consequential, either of the ones that we've talked about tonight or maybe the ones that we haven't talked about? A case or a piece where you anticipate it's going to have a bigger impact on the long term, either political discourse in this country or future cases going forward. So uh, this is a, a last, like, what's a, what's one additional thing you want to have people leave uh, about thinking about this most recent term? Julie, do you want to go first? Yeah. Um, so I think I, I mentioned this when I was talking about the affirmative action cases and it's um, Justice Roberts and the more conservative uh, wing of the court's view of a colorblind constitution. And this comes up in, in voting rights by litigation as well, um, how that conception is going to um, shape uh, the role of uh, and views of race and equal protection um, moving forward versus I think a, a very different uh, conception of what uh, the constitution mandates in terms of equality from the more liberal wing of the court. And I think that's a tension um, that we have seen over the course of the last, like, you know, half decade, and we're going to continue to see that tension play out. So I think thematically, you'll want to look at that, right? So, um, and this is really not just at the heart of what the Supreme Court is deciding, but I actually think this is at the, the heart of, um, you know, the cultural clash uh, between, um, you know, people who are, um, you know, pushing toward racial reconciliation, redressing uh, the racial wrongs and sins of the past, and those uh, who um, feel that, um, you know, that work has been done or some of that, uh, you know, comes into conflict with this idea of a colorblind uh, constitution. And so um, it strikes to the heart of the Equal Protection Clause. I think it also strikes to the heart of where we are as a, as a culture. Um, and again, you're going to see this come up um, in cultural uh, business challenges to diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, how far those can go, um, and in, in hiring practices that come out of that um, as well. So uh, that's important for understanding where I think the court might go, but also where the culture, right, our constitutional culture um, and our race relations in this country will go. Well, yeah. Thank you, Julie. Uh, Tommy, same question. Uh, what do you leave us with? 
Sure. I'll flag a wonky one about federalism, National Pork Producers Council versus Ross. This is about, again, the relationship between the various states in our federal economy and how much power can one have and how much influence can one have or another. California essentially sets strict limits for selling pork within its state. A bunch of people who produce pork in other states objected that this is going to essentially have a nationwide effect. You can't really separate the pork you sell in California from the other states. And the Supreme Court rejected that challenge, saying there's no indication here they were intending to bully the other states. They're just setting the rules for pork sold within their own state. And if that happened, if they happen to be a really big state, and if that happens to have really serious ripple effects in the other 49 states, we're not going to police those boundaries. So as you know, as the nation gets more and more connected, especially in the internet age, this is something we have to deal with. And these are still lines that we, we constantly run into is how much can one state sort of de facto set the rules for the others. So I'd say particularly in internet policy, as states increasingly set, you know, rules on so what can social media do within our state when it's often impossible for sites to have different rules for different states. So complying with Texas might, or complying with Utah might mean you have to set those strict rules for the other 49 states as well. Uh, it kind of flew under the radar, but the upshot is there's going to be a lot more perhaps effects than people are expecting, where suddenly a rule set in California or Texas or Florida means that the products, certain products are no longer sold in your own state or websites suddenly look very different in your own state. Tommy, thank you for that. A fascinating case as well. I'm eager to see some of the discussion and consequences of that. Uh, thank you both, Tommy and Julie, for joining us tonight. Really appreciate the, the clarity and insight that you brought to the conversation about what can often be a a, a dense and challenging topic. Thank you so much for bringing that insight to the teachers joining us tonight. Uh, for those of you joining us tonight, thank you for taking part of your summer break to be here. Really appreciate you taking the time to continue your learning and to bring these conversations back to your students. For those of you who are going to be joining us at Sphere Summit over the course of the coming weeks, so excited to see you in person. Can't wait. Thank you all so much for that. Appreciate you all tonight. Have a wonderful evening, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Take care, everyone.